1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much for those readings. Morning, everyone. It's really great to see you this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the student ministers here at Church at Nine in Strathfield. Um, let's pray as we look at God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your word is alive and true, that it is good for transforming us, rebuking us, and encouraging us. Lord, as we come before a passage that is difficult this morning, prepare our hearts and minds so that we can hear what you have to say to us clearly that we have minds ready to receive what you have to say to us. And may we be transformed and be better for it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. There are so many traditions, aren't there? You know, certain things that people in a group do that mean something to that group. It could be a, a particular way you greet each other. Some people like to shake hands. Some people like to have a kiss on the cheek. Some people have a super secret handshake. Another example could be how you enter a house. Do shoes on, shoes off, hat on, hat off. Do you use the front door or do you use the back door? And these are just two of the many, many examples of traditions out there in our wide world. The thing about traditions among groups is that we often don't give much attention to the reason a particular tradition even exists. Many traditions have been around for so long and so ingrained in us that we just take them for granted and sometimes we get to the point where we ask the question, what's the point? Do these things really make a difference? And I know I have asked that question. And I'm sure you will have too, because traditions have a habit of feeling a bit arbitrary, don't they? But even if an act or a tradition is arbitrary, the principle behind it isn't. 
You can replace a handshake with a fist bump and still communicate the same respect that it was intended to, just like we have in recent times. So when you choose to ignore these traditions, arbitrary or not, it actually communicates the opposite of the original principle, disrespect rather than respect. This is because traditions communicate something to the rest of the group, and to go against the tradition communicates disrespect for that tradition and a person who and the person who created that tradition and the group who holds that tradition while bringing shame upon yourself because you're alienating yourself from the group. As a church, we are back, back in Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth, and we are now beginning in chapter 11 and a new section of Paul's letter. Many of those themes that have been there in the past that we've seen of wisdom and glorifying God are continuing, but they're now being focused and looking more of how they apply to the order and running of church, how a group of people come together for the purpose of worshipping God and building up each other. And in this passage, what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand is that being men and women of God means taking part in a particular order where your role is important and equally valuable, whether you're a man or a woman. And Paul does this by first helping them and us to understand that there is a, an order of, that is good that is given by God for good authority, as well as good differences to fulfill the shared goal. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 2. After chapters and chapters of rebuking, it's nice to see that the Corinthians are doing something right. Verse 2, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them. It seems that when it comes to traditions, the Corinthian church has actually remembered to follow and maintain them. When it comes to the structure and the operation of the church, they've continued to remember Paul and what he has passed down to them. But what are the traditions? The traditions that's being mentioned are the standards for Christian teaching and living, or in other words, what an expression of life under God looks like, how it is organised and functions, which Paul will apply further in the following chapters. But in this passage, Paul is focusing on and correcting some errors in the Corinthian church to do with the relationship between men and women, particularly when it comes to public worship, how men and women come together to worship God and encourage each other to glorify God. First, have a look at verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This verse is definitely for all those out there who love puzzles to solve. Because there's actually three key words in this verse that there could be more than one meaning to. The most important, I think, and debated is what is meant by head. Does Paul mean a literal head? Like on your body? Does Paul mean a metaphorical head? Is it to do with authority or is it to do with source? And there are these issues of whether husband and wife actually mean men and women more generally. Because 
the Greek word for man and woman also means husband and wife. What I think Paul is doing here in this verse is using the word head as a metaphor for authority, creating the picture of how a head has authority over the rest of the body. And it's authority, not source, that Paul is meaning because if you say that the head of Christ is God and what you're meaning is that God is the source of Christ, then you end up in a pretty tricky situation where you're, where you're saying that Christ was created from God and therefore not God himself. So I think authority fits better here. I also think that although the ESV prefers husband and wife, Paul is also is more likely to be speaking of men and women in general with specific implications for married women. Now, even though I can only see you through Zoom at the moment, I'm pretty sure that the idea of men having authority over women doesn't sit very well with everybody, which is completely understandable because we as a society really struggle with the concept of authority. And there are two reasons that come to my mind. The first is that the world is how the world understands equality. The second I can think of is how we've all had so many experiences with really terrible figures in authority. When it comes to equality, the world measures equality with a measure of equal outcome. In our culture, our value is tied to our success. For all groups of society to be equal, each group must have equal success in society. And anything that is in the structure of society that gets in the way of equal success for all groups needs to therefore be removed and replaced. So a structure, like in this, in this passage, where one group is held in authority over another, well, that must be removed and replaced because with a structure that promotes an equal outcome. But the problem with this view of equality is all it ends up doing is creating a value seesaw where either men and women gain or lose value based upon whether the culture at the time raises them up or lowers them down. Whereas the Bible doesn't talk about equality or value like that. To have authority over another doesn't actually affect value because value is not tied to who holds, who holds power. Rather, the Bible says that our value comes from God. He alone gives us value. And it's despite who has authority over who. The value of men and women remains equal. When it comes to the example of terrible authority figures, it's true that there are more bad than good examples out there. Each is as bad and hypocritical as the next, and many of those bad examples, unfortunately, are men who hold authority. So a verse like this naturally invokes either personal memories or experiences of people that you know and love who have been under a man holding authority in a particularly bad way and how tragic that's, that scenario is. But here again, also, the bad example we see of people holding authority isn't actually the example that the Bible is talking about. The example this passage is referring to is actually Christ himself. 
not just an example of holding power, but he's also the example of being under power. Look at the verse again. Verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is her husband is man, and the head of Christ is God. In Ephesians 5, Paul fleshes out what it looks like to be a head of authority, and it's actually nothing like the world describes it. In Ephesians 5, Paul encourages husbands to be heads of their wives, to love and lay down their lives to them, and to be responsible for his wife growing in love and faith, becoming more and more like Christ. This instruction is based on Christ's own example of headship over the church. By loving and laying down his life, he makes us holy and blameless before God. Christ is also the example of being under authority. When Paul says that the head of Christ is God, he isn't saying that Christ is of less value to God. He is referring to the son's example of obedience to the father in order to fulfill his plan for salvation. Christ lived a life of perfect obedience, obediently offering himself as a sacrifice for our sin in order to bring us back to him. For women and men who are both under either Christ's authority or a men's authority, we, like Christ, are to offer our whole selves, not just part of ourselves, trusting fully, not just partly, in God's plans and promises for salvation. Paul in Romans 12 sums this up in one term. We are to be like living sacrifices. Just as Christ under God's authority obediently offered himself as the sacrifice, we must offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the authority that we're under, trusting in their roles as a part of God's good order, a plan to bring and transform and renew our minds. Now, this complete offering assumes some things. A woman to be under a man's authority in the same way that Christ demonstrated assumes that a man whose authority you are under is actually under Christ's authority and therefore completely offering himself to Christ. It also assumes that the man whose authority that a woman is under is imitating Christ's example of humility, love, sacrifice, and responsibility. And if your husband isn't showing these characteristics and potentially showing the opposite of, these, of this, I urge you to please seek help and reach out. It is one thing for a husband to be trying so hard but failing and completely another to be repeatedly demonstrating the opposite to Christ's example. This shows disregard and dishonour to Christ's example, and it shows disregard and dishonour towards you. So I urge you, please seek help. Reach out to a friend that you trust, and please contact someone like Huey. But even though this is a tragic reality in our fallen world, I don't know about you, but if given the choice between the authority that the world demonstrates and holds, which is a continuous cycle of bad figures where even the best still suffer from selfish ambition and hypocrisy, or the choice of the model of authority that Paul is referring to here where the example is set by Christ himself, an example without selfish ambition or hypocrisy, rather humility, 
love, sacrifice, responsibility. I know which one I would prefer to follow. How about you? Even though being under authority doesn't sit well because we are all products of our culture, wouldn't you rather to be under the kind of authority that Christ has demonstrated? Because we do actually have to choose between the two. Paul's point isn't simply to lay out the order of authority for us. He's also pointing out that no matter who you are, man or woman, everyone is under authority. And the great news is that whether you are under or in authority, Christ is our example. Paul firstly wants us to understand that the order of authority is good. The difference between men and women in that order is also good, which is my next point, good differences. If authority wasn't a hot enough topic, Paul continues with the issues of the difference between men and women. Now, how the how is how those differences manifest themselves as the Corinthian church comes together in worship, verses four to five. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the the same as if her head were shaven. Now, I know what you're thinking. What difference could it possibly make whether our heads are covered or not? What difference could it possibly make how long or short our hair is? And that's a very good question to ask. Because if it's a big deal, it doesn't really seem to be affecting how we come together at church at night, does it? When we come together and worship, men either have men and women either have hats on or hats off. Uh, men and women either have long hair or short hair. And as far as I'm aware, Huey hasn't instructed welcomers to check if men are wearing hats or if women are not wearing hats. And nor have I ever seen welcomers holding measuring tapes to measure the, and assess the length of hair before people come in. So what's going on? Well, I think it would be too simplistic of me to say, right, clearly it says here that women need hats and long hair to participate in worship at church. And also all those guys out there wearing caps, get them off or get out. That would be an easy way to apply this passage, but it would also be missing the point. That is because it's not the hats or the hair per se that is the issue. What they symbolise is actually the issue. This is another situation where there is great debate, whether Paul is talking about just hair or head coverings and then referring to hair as a natural example of a biblical truth. I think it is head coverings with reference to hair because there are some historical evidence that Roman women wore head coverings in worship. This head covering visually showed that a woman was married and under her husband's authority, as well as acting as a distinction between men and women. So if, if this garment is in fact what Paul is referring to, then you can see why he's coming so strongly at it. Because one garment had the power to visually show and communicate, one, the order of authority, and two, the distinction and differences between men and women. 
whether or not a head covering was a part of the tradition that Paul handed down to the Corinthians or a carryover from Roman or Jewish culture, it is a powerful sign understood and shared in the culture around them of God's good order for creation. So it makes sense why Paul is so strong about this. It makes sense why Paul is so strong on a potentially arbitrary item of clothing. Because abstaining or reappropriating the powerful meaning that the head covering captured sends an equally powerful message of rebellion and dishonour towards the God-given good order and design that the head cover captures. So for a woman or a man to get up and pray or prophesy demonstrating such rebellion, it wasn't just a distraction, it was an act of dishonour. Verse 6. For a wife, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let it let her cover her head. Put simply, Paul is saying, what you refuse symbolically shows your heart in reality. A woman refusing to cover her head may as well shave her hair off. Because her hair is another visual symbol of her femininity, but it comes at a much greater cost. Not only would she lose her hair, which is a valuable and admired part of a woman at the time, she would also be showing dishonour that is within her heart. A woman's shaved head at this time communicated to all around her shame. To treat the distinction between men and women as arbitrary or interchangeable, especially in public worship, was to ignore the fact that the differences between men and women are so essential to who we are as humans and essential to how we worship God. Despite our culture's efforts to devalue the role of men and women in the family and society, the Bible describes men and women as both necessary to complete the image of God. As Paul, which what Paul describes in verses seven to ten, when neither a man or woman alone can complete the image of God. Verse seven, for a head, for, sorry, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, and a woman is the glory of man. And the order in which a man and woman were created sets the order of authority. Man was created first. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so then created woman from his rib, the two completing the image of God, never being independent of each other, verse 11. The picture of the relationship the Bible paints is of equal value and interdependence. Men and women are different, which is a good thing. They complement each other for the greater task of bringing God's of being God's image bearers in creation, having dominion over creation through the multiplying in number to achieve the core goal of glorifying God. And it's interesting how this image of the relationship between men and women stands in such opposition to the picture that the world paints, where men and women don't actually share a single goal and therefore fight over which gender does or should have more power. The value of men and women is then therefore lost in the struggle. The picture also paints differences as a bad thing because, after all, any difference in outcome in our culture affects value. 
not only are differences being devalued in our Hmong culture, but they are actually also being erased. At the heart of gender and trans theory and transgender ideology is the desire to make gender interchangeable and arbitrary, to make it a human construction rather than God's design, to take what God has given and manipulate it for its own end. More and more, the lies of the irrelevance of biological and social differences between men and women is being spread in our culture and it is being accepted. And the outcome is devastating, destructive, dangerous and irreversible. Despite what the movement and media may say, I have read about many men and women having irreversible medical procedures that they greatly regret now. I know of and have read about how this type of thinking and ideology destroys marriages and families, and it's all because of these lies about the difference between men and women. This movement is also simply erasing women. Men who identify as women are taking athletic achievements away from women. Women are also being erased in certain political circles where they are no longer referred to as women, rather now called birthing people, because in this ideology, both men and women can have babies. But the Bible stands against this, with a picture of relationship between men and women sharing the same goal, with complete interdependence. And its claim about the true order of creation is visible in creation, which is what Paul appeals to in verses 13 to 15. Paul says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife or woman to pray to, to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. Paul is illustrating the point with a length of hair in both men and women. And when he says that does not nature teach, does not nature itself teach, he is appealing to a time-old way of reasoning that we find in wisdom literature, to understand the world by reflecting on the order of creation, to better understand the creator and his purposes and design within creation. But Paul isn't looking back to the beginning as a point of reference here. Otherwise, he'll be referring to Genesis 2 again. Instead, he is saying, look around you. Isn't it the natural order of the day that men have short hair and women have long hair? It's an illustration of the biblical truth that men and women are different. And that difference is good. And to deny that, it kind of removes the goal of worship in the first place, which is to glorify God. Which is why Paul says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The point of coming together as Christians in worship is to firstly glorify God and secondly build up each other. To make a statement that cuts at the very design of the image of God doesn't glorify God or build up each other. Instead, it robs glory from God and takes away encouragement from each other. And in doing so, 
gives encouragement to yourself and glorifies yourself. This has been a very tricky and heavy passage with a lot of puzzles and heavy concepts. But it is also a passage of great encouragement. Although this passage stands against a lot of our modern culture, it paints a picture of the relationships between men and women, where even though men have authority over women, men and women are equal in value. It paints a picture of both being in authority and under authority that is based upon Christ's example, where the differences between men and women are fundamental to the design of humanity, where men and women interdependently need each other to accomplish the shared goal of glorifying God. After all, both are called to pray and prophesy in the gathering. It's a picture of purpose and certainty, which the picture the world offers is incapable of replicating because it ignores the fact that all things come from God and that he designed and purposed all things for his glory. So as we go out this week, I think it is equally important to live in light of what we've received from this passage this morning, as well as continue to reflect on it. Reread it again and again throughout this week. Talk about it. Let it sink in. And as you go out, be encouraged and certain that whether you're a man or a woman, you play a fundamental role in glorifying God. Men. As you hold authority, remember you are under Christ's authority, so imitate his example. Hold authority with humility, love, sacrifice, and responsibility. Be ready to step up to that call. And women, as under that authority, do so with your whole self, helping to bring about God's plan for salvation because that is the example that Christ has demonstrated. Let us go out as godly men and women, embracing our differences and sharing the same goal of bringing glory to God by holding to and living the tradition that has been given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We all feel how much it cuts against the culture that we have lived in and grown up in. Help us to reflect on what you have said to us throughout the week. Help your message and work grow in us so that we can be more transformed into the likeness of Christ. As we both exercise and come under authority in our lives, may we resemble Christ's example. May we also be living sacrifices under Christ's authority. We pray to be loving, sacrificial, and responsible with all humility, giving of our whole selves. And let us encourage each other as a church coming together the certainty and goodness of our differences and the good order that you have given us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.